You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your uh, languaging host, Abraham. And I will be your half interpreter, Shane. (laughs) Perfect. Today we are taking on a very interesting topic that I think is maybe more, there's more to it than it sounds like at the beginning. And we are talking about interpretation. Yeah. So we had wanted to tackle this because so much of what we do, like when we look at research and we look at data and we do all the stuff, we are actually interpreting information and we're creating a picture and we're doing all this really cool stuff with it. But like Abraham said, like there is so much more than just looking at a graph and going, that's the answer. And so what we'll find here, probably maybe one of the things, one of the things that I find here is that people's interpretations are not exactly what they seem. <laughs> and it's also exactly like you said, that you could make the case that a large amount, if maybe not even the majority of the things that we do on a daily basis, include interpreting in one sense or another, if we're using language at all. Mm-hmm. And we'll see more of that as we get into this conversation. And so we sort of identified that there are three angles we're going to take in this conversation where we're talking about what interpreting is. And at its very outset, it's useful to understand that when we're talking about interpreting, this is superimposing one language framework over some other language framework or some kind of like events. And so, for example, this means translating languages from one language to another, but it can also include translating jargon. So like technical language to a more accessible language. Mm -hmm. Interpretation can also be applied to natural events. And from there, you can interpret those events to have some meaning, be it a scientific meaning or a supernatural meaning or whatever. And then finally, we have interpreting with respect to data. And what, what do we when we look at information that we've gathered through the scientific method, how do we extract meaning from that? That activity is a form of interpretation. Yeah. And so, you know, within all that, I mean, those are just three examples of, of what we might be looking at, but there's also a lot of different things that come out of this. We're going to talk about law. We're going to talk about, you know, context. We're going to talk about all these things, which is really cool, but it's important to, as we go into this, understand why interpretation matters because it sounds like, oh, we're just talking about looking at information and making new information or True. making decisions about this. But ultimately what we're looking at is it's easy to mistake the interpretation of an event with the event itself. And in doing so, we treat the interpretation as literally true. So what ends up happening here is that we might make errors in judgment or overextend our knowledge about something by failing to acknowledge the role of our own interpretation. So basically what ends up happening is interpretation is one of the leading causes of bias or poor interpretation, I should say, is really a lead into bias. And and we have to understand that bias exists through some type of interpretation of some information that we might or might not have. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's, you know, and not even, I mean, leading to bias, I think is accurate and it in itself could be the bias. That, that act of, of superimposing language in that way. And yeah, that's a really good point. And the other reason I think that this matters is that by tackling this in this dialogue and this conversational manner, by tackling interpretation, we can survey the kinds of interpretation and how they currently work and can strive to better improve our ability to interpret and be as pragmatic and as useful as possible in how we go about doing these things and recognize where our I want to use the word blind spots, but where our biases are, I guess. And to be able to catch ourselves when we start to fall into that trap of, just as you said, that we interpret the 
or we treat the interpretation as if it were literally the same thing as the event that we encounter. It's a really good one. Since we have so much to unpack here, we should probably just get into it. I mean, we as we were kind of looking at the notes, and, and a huge thank you to Alan for putting these notes together. We were just kind of looking at it and going, this is a bigger topic than I think any of us had really anticipated. So I say we just get into it. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> that sounds appropriate to me. All right. So in order to understand interpretation, of course, we have to have a definition. So thanks, Oxford Dictionary, for giving us the definition of interpretation. So it could be the action of explaining the meaning of something or... It could be an explanation or way of explaining, or it could be a stylistic representation of a creative work or a dramatic role. So even in interpreting the definition of interpretation, we have multiple definitions. Right. It's one of those words that is kind of defined by itself in a way. Yeah. It's really interesting. All right. And then there is the use of interpretation. And of course, this applies to language, research, law, social interactions, decision-making processes, purchasing habits, conspiracy theories or at least understanding how they develop, as well as investigation, detective work, and of course, science. Science. Ah, we love science. That's our thing here, I think. Absolutely. I have a shirt that says, I heart science, but the heart is an anatomically correct heart. Oh, that's good. I like that. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) I I thought it was very clever. Yeah. So across each use, you're going to find some angle of interpretation. We're not going to be able to dig into each and every one of those. We're going to spend some time on looking at translating or interpreting language, like like Abraham mentioned before, applying meaning to those observable events and looking at either supernatural events or even observable events and, and looking at how to apply that and also interpreting and collecting organized data. So looking at data that has been collected and being able to make decisions, make interpretations, make guesses, or, or just come to conclusions based on information that we have collected and organized in a certain way. Exactly. And hopefully you'll be able to interpret all the things that we say. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. Okay. I'll try and not make that pun again for the rest of this episode. (laughs) I think we're going to say the word interpret so much that you're going to be sick of hearing the word interpret. Yeah. So interpret this however you want to interpret it because we're going to explain (laughs) interpreting for you. (laughs) Just getting that out of the way. All right. So let's talk about translating language and jargon. And I think there is a common concern, especially among people who are professionals, about how do we translate our technical language to other professionals? How do we translate our language to our customers or to our clients? And it's worth starting with, why do we even use technical language to begin with? I mean, I feel like most people maybe even know the answer to this, but the reason is because it functions to further scientific study of those scientists, of those fields. And it allows us to be very precise in our language such that when we talk about one particular event, somebody else who has the same training and that jargon will understand exactly what we mean. Most people will have encountered that when we speak in sort of conversations, we can use phrases not in the way that those phrases were technically meant to be defined. We can say things that are just sort of colloquial. They're regional. They could be even like with just within our little social circle and we get what those things mean. In technical language and in science, we have to be able to communicate more precisely. You might hear phrases such as differential reinforcement, response cost, extinction procedures from like behavior analysts and that sort of thing. But this is going to hit a wall when it comes time to disseminate that same message to our relevant stakeholders and consumers and clients and that sort of thing, because those aren't terms that they're going to encounter in most of their everyday language. Only once they've had you beating that over the over their head repeatedly with those terms will that start to mean anything and like we shouldn't have to stoop to that level 
For folks that are listening to the podcast, this is actually something that we strive for is moving away from that technical jargon and into something that's more consumable. I mean, literally, that's the spirit of the podcast is moving away from that technical jargon so that people can actually access the information that we're trying to provide. So if we came on here as behavior analysts and started talking about responses and and looking at the, the, the contingencies of behavior and all this stuff, people would get lost so quick and we would only be able to speak to a very specific audience. But because we try to take that language that we have and translate it and superimpose another language on top of that jargon language, we are creating a different type of product that can be interpreted by folks who are listening. So, you know, according to B-Side 21 in an article written by Todd Ward and Angela Cathy, they say, quote, language is only functional to the extent that listeners or the audience can respond to it in a meaningful way. The interaction between the speaker and the listener forms the very core of Skinner's verbal behavior. And quote, if people don't respond in a meaningful way to your language, then what you're saying isn't functional. So basically what they're saying is, is that if I'm speaking to you and I'm trying to convey an idea and I'm trying to describe some kind of concept to you and it's not coming across, then your language isn't working and it's not able to be interpreted. And if it can't be interpreted, then it's probably not functional for the conversation that you're having or not useful for the conversation that you're having. And of course, when, they're, when they mention Skinner's verbal behavior, they're talking about the famed American behavior psychologist B.F. Skinner and his contributions to behaviorism and psychology, which was, I think, maybe more well-known in the middle of the 20th century, but is actually incredibly, incredibly popular. And I think that many people don't, don't actually know how common behaviorism still is and that there are degrees in this and and many thousands and thousands of people who get certified to practice this. And to be fair, though, Skinner's verbal behavior is not the best representation of behavior analysis. It's kind of an incomplete work. That was something I had learned uh, in school. When I had read it, I was like, this is a tough read. <laughs> after I read it, I was like, you know, there's so much more research that's come after that. So it was a good start. Yeah, there's definitely been a ton more that has been added to that. I think that there are definitely some who would argue with you about that point, but I think everyone can agree that a lot of research on language, even from behaviorists, has come after that book, which was published in the 40s or no, the 50s, 50s. I think 57. Right. Right, But we don't talk about sequelics anymore. So (laughs) no, you're right. Yeah. Or (laughs) metonymical tax that is still out there as well. But but no, you're right that this is a it's something that has evolved quite a bit. So anyway, let's get let's get back on track here in terms of why we interpret for an audience. And the reason, of course, as you just mentioned, was that dissemination of these technical terms and this language, it requires a sensitivity to your audience and that the audience that you're trying to communicate with any given moment. You are right. We are interpreters. Like that is what we do on this podcast and why we do it, actually, (laughs) frankly. Yeah, there you go. That's the reason. That's the function. Exactly. So the idea here is if, if we can't speak in such a way that you can understand it, then what are we doing? You know, I may as well just talk to a wall or, you know, find a, a nice large forest to just talk to the trees and the squirrels for all the good it's yeah. going to do. Which actually, that sounds really nice. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Shane's got the, the forest man look going on. He's going to wander out. Yeah. And beware the alligators. My concern is that I would wander in the forest and somebody would shoot me thinking that I was some woodland creature that they've never discovered. Yeah. Particularly in Florida. They might just shoot you n- n- just for being outside. So Just because. Yeah. <laughs> So consider this example when paraphrasing the infamous bedtime pass procedure by Pat Fryman. So if you're not familiar with this, ideally the bedtime pass was kind of like a ticket to get out of our, your normal bedtime. Infamous. It's an interesting thing because uh, basically it gives par- it gives the child a, a little bit of a choice to be like, I'm going to cash this in so I don't have to go to bed at my normal time. 
And so if I say, quote, we're going to introduce a hard copy stimulus that can be traded in to act as preferred attention, but it can only be used once per night. Every subsequent attempt to exit the room or gain attention is met with an extinction procedure. If I say that, like there's not a person in the world except for maybe a couple of behavior analysts out there. And even then that's a pretty technical description of it. So you hear this procedure and you're like, I don't really, I don't really understand it. It's like speaking a separate language. I mean, and even Pat Fryman will say like, we are one of the only fields that insists on people using our language. So we can do better. Sure. Now you could compare that description that you just gave with a more approachable way of phrasing it, which might be something like, quote, give your child this pass and decorate it however he or she would like. Tell them they can only use it once per night. That first time it's used, respond to your child with whatever they want, such as a hug, a water, a song. Once they return to the room, if they cry out for you again, ignore all further requests. End quote. Of course, this can be detailed even more accessibly than I did, but you see the difference between the two. The latter is far more likely to receive a warmer welcome from the parent, whereas the former comes off as this sort of verbal spinal tap. <laughs> yeah, it's not helpful. I mean, and I think that's the thing is like when you're talking about language and translating language, you have to know your audience. You have to know the folks you're speaking to in order to be able to get the idea across. Right. So and, you know, it's OK for specific words to differ greatly. So as long as they're functionally equivalent or they make sense or they work right, like as long as they kind of match, like it's the idea of in Dead Poet Society when Robin Williams is talking about the use of the word very and how the word very is lazy. You should use more descriptive words, but you can use different words to get your point across in a more meaningful way. Like if I say I'm very tired versus exhausted, those are two different meanings, but I'm, I'm using language to kind of get a better idea across. And, and so when you start kind of substituting words for other words, thinking of it from that perspective, like if I say reward versus reinforcement, if I say cue for descriptive stimulus, like you'll hear us on the podcast say a lot, we'll use the term cue, but there's a more specific scientific jargon for that term that we refuse to use because it's not helpful in interpreting or translating the language that we're trying to say. So even behavioral science, I mean, if we say behavioral science versus behavior analysis, I can guarantee that we'll get different questions and different responses simply by the change in a, in a single term. Yeah. I often will say behavior psychologist because I think I feel like that is more easily received by a lot of people than if I say behavior analyst. Usually if I say behavior analyst, they'll say, are you trying to analyze my behavior right now? And then I sigh and walk away because I've heard that line so, so, so many times. I usually say I already did. <laughs> that's even better. I like that. <laughs> so that's usually where I leave that. It's like, I already did. And that usually kind of stops people in their tracks. You say, I just figured you out right now. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got, I figured out your function. Like what? <laughs> figured out your function. <laughs> Which is not true. I mean, it's not true, but like I, I usually like, I, I try to turn it off when I'm not working, but like, you know, I try not to analyze folks behavior, but uh, you know, I like I like doing that because I think people expect you to be like, to say something kind of snarky. It's like, well, yeah, kind of, no, but I'm like, I already did. Right. I got to figure it out. That's right. And they're like, Oh, what? Freak out. <laughs> That's a good reaction. All right. So let's talk about interpretation as when it comes to languages, as we had begun talking about at the beginning of this, this part of this discussion, which is that language, when we're, we're talking about interpretation, this is another form of interpretation where you use one language framework to access another language framework. So someone who speaks both English and Arabic fluently could use the language of English to make Arabic more accessible to someone like me who does not speak Arabic, meaning that when one person is speaking an Arabic language, the other person is going to then put their own experience with language and their own experience with English on top of that language, and they're going to then convey that second part to me because I, I can access the English part of that and I do not speak 
Arabic, not at all. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. That's right. You got Duolingo all loaded up. <laughs> Again, this is simply one language event placed over another language event. And what, what that means is that what the audience or the translator hears is the interpreter's decision of how to align those languages, which is very important because you could actually have it be the case that that person maybe isn't very good at that language and they're just sort of doing their best guess. You could have someone who's really good at that language. And instead of saying exactly what that person is saying, they're saying what that means as they understand it. And there is this story that I heard on a podcast where a director was talking about a movie that they made where a lot of it was in a foreign language and they didn't use subtitles in the movie to say what the characters were saying. What they wanted is they wanted the audience to feel confused and isolated from that language and have it be from the perspective of their, of their protagonist. And what they said was so interesting is they said that this person goes in the situation and these two people start yelling at each other in this language and it sounds really hostile and it's like making this, the protagonist really nervous and really afraid. And those two people actually just talking about what they were going to have for lunch. They were just yelling it. <laughs> and so the person doesn't know that like all they have access to is, is the tone and the body language. And so they were actually imposing their own interpretation on that situation in terms of what it meant. And so again, it's like it is in the eye of the beholder in a, in a way. I love that example because I think that that makes it a lot of fun to kind of look at language and how somebody might learn language or how somebody might learn meaning of language. I mean, this is super relevant for when you talk about why there's multiple versions of books and how there's different translations of the text and how there are different versions of it, like Beowulf or the Bible or even the Constitution, right? Like there are multiple versions of these books. Now, what's really interesting about this, though, is that when we talk about interpretation, we are not just talking about word for word, line for line, item for item translations, right? And this right. is really important because when you talk about the English language, the English language has over a million words in it. Half of them are scientific jargon. The other half are still just a lot of words compared to other languages that may only have a maximum of 200,000 or less. So you've probably heard somebody say, oh, there's no, we don't have a word for that in our language. If you've heard that, that's an issue of interpretation, which now takes one word and turns it into a story or vice versa. You know, So when you start looking at this interpretation of language, that becomes a unique challenge. So that brings us to the actual, one of the really fun things about interpretation, which is the idea of connotation, right? So the idea of connotation is that the impact of unique words has a direct relation with exposure to similar phrases and as well as the language or the culture in which one exists. So like idioms, for example. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, when we start talking about like, it's raining cats and dogs. That sounds like an insane thing. I was also listening to something, or I was reading something, a David Sedaris book. He's talking about how driver insults vary across different cultures and how one of them was pretty much I defecate in your mother's mouth oh, God. in like some like Western European countries. And so like, you know, where we might say like, hey, that wasn't nice because Americans tend to be really calm behind the wheel. Some other <laughs> folks might say some more aggressive things about like dragging certain body parts across certain memorial cakes, which are used for funerals. So, Ugh. you know, connotation does really matter, though. Yeah. Yeah. Good <laughs> examples in there. <laughs> So with regard to language, defining the system of communication used by a particular country or community therein, there exists this pattern of behavior of language that includes things like slang, popular metaphors, other linguistic units that are unique to the particular language or people. If you think about even even the things like raining cats and dogs, I don't know how often people say that anymore, but you might say something like, shoot me a text. Uh -huh. And you're someone who's like, shoot you? 
how would I sh- like in a sli- like I'm going to take a, sl- a text in a slingshot or like load it into a gun or do you want me to like literally shoot you like that's a it's a weird it's a weird way of phrasing it that's just become really commonplace that kind of evolution happens all the time in languages really fast it shifts with culture it shifts with generations it shifts with technology and so those things then require a nuanced understanding of those so that if you're going to interpret you are going to then have to think what is the closest link to the language I'm trying to interpret to the language that I'm hearing? And do I understand what they mean when they say things like this in the language that I'm hearing? Exactly. Because in, in the dictionary, you can go look up bootylicious and that is an English word. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Explain that to somebody who is learning English. Nah. What is this bootylicious? It's like, no thanks. So you don't need to know about it. Don't worry. It's culturally irrelevant now. Was that the, the new Borat movie? <laughs> <laughs> I hope it was. Okay. I feel like maybe there was more intelligent interpretations of United States culture in that. I would have missed the mark on that. Uh, okay. I have toilet humor for, for that kind of satire. <laughs> That's fair. All right. So a good example of the specific words not being a direct implication of the function in which those words were intended is even if we're using English, but English in different parts of the world. So for example, if you're sitting in a college lecture in London and you ask the student next to you for a rubber, you'll probably receive a pink eraser to fix an error on your paper. If you make that same request for a rubber and your classmate in the United States, maybe at UCLA, you're likely to get quite a disgusted reaction or at least something very different than an eraser. (laughs) And again, we just have different names for these things. One of my favorite things right now is watching the great British baking show and just (laughs) listening to the language they use on there. I'm like, I have no idea what that means, but it's it sounds so proper, whatever they're saying. And they're so nice to each other. So, yeah, the slang is so funny. Do you hear them? Because like what they call like garbage rubbish and the trash cans are bins. So you throw the rubbish in the bin and I'm like, that's great. What a great, I wish more people talked like that. So, <laughs> And then of course, there's anyway. Cockney rhyming slang and all of that, but we won't get into that now. That's a whole different episode. So it's not just enough to be on the fringe of each verbal community or like the audience or the group of people that speak the language, right? But rather the goal should be to be totally immersed in each one to the point of identifying where the topography meets the cultural relativism. What I mean is this is like you should know enough or like the goal of being an interpreter is to know enough about both languages in contexts to be able to accurately interpret. A few years ago, there was a sign language interpreter that was signing all kinds of ridiculous things. I can't remember. It was like basically he was not an interpreter. He knew some words in sign language and was just signing behind i think it was uh was it one of the was it the president was it obama at the time no i think it was when nelson mandela died and they hired an interpreter who wasn't actually an interpreter for sign language and was just making it up i remember this story yeah yeah so ultimately the issue was he knew enough sign language to be able to say the words but had no way to interpret or apply the meaning so if you know enough about the language as well as the cultural relevance of the language then you're more likely to have a more accurate interpretation so What we're saying is like to be truly proficient and effective at translation, you need to be very aware of those specific nuances. You have to know things like sarcasm, jokes, phrasing, any of those unique things that impact the language so that you can interpret it more effectively and accurately. There's another interesting element to this whole idea of interpreting language, interpreting jargon. And this is actually how computers do this with our language. There are those who have become masterful at avoiding filters on certain language sites And so they post hateful languages to avoid those, but they post them in such a way that they can avoid those filters. And so folks online will change the form of racial slurs or hate language so that it can't be detected by the software and flagged as problematic language. So they might change one of the characters in the word to be a number, but you obviously, any fluent reader is going to recognize immediately what it's supposed to say. 
And so it's a, you know, it's just take any old curse word. And if there's an A in it, you can put the four instead of an A and it kind of looks like an A or you can use a one instead of an I and it kind of looks like an I. And those are, are letters that you can use to replace some of them in there. And for a while, the computer isn't going to catch that that happens. And essentially, they just change the form or the shape of the language so that it's not interpretable. It's not translatable or detectable by the software, um, by the program. The software then can't do what it was designed to do. And that was detect and interpret specific language. Another one that they might do is they'll post it in segments. So they do a whole bunch of consecutive posts with one letter or a couple of characters at a time so that when you look at it, you immediately recognize what they're spelling out across consecutive posts. But the software is only programmed to detect one post at a time. And so we are extremely good at interpreting those messages when we see them. And so these people are very creative in just creating messages that can be interpreted by humans because we're so good at it, but not by computers because we it's hard to program that much nuance into a piece of software. Well, and I think that illustrates a really important part of interpretation, which is that context matters. Every single time you go to interpret something, it requires you to have some understanding of the context because just the shape of the thing that you're looking at might not matter that much. Just the form of the word, the form of the language, the form of it, whatever it is that you're looking at is not enough to form a complete interpretation of whatever the situation is or whatever that, that, that bit of information is that you're trying to make sense of. You're exactly right. And it's always important to bring around the, the conversation to understanding the relative importance of context and how we understand events. I was going to say interpret again, but <laughs> <laughs> how we make sense of a situation. There you go. This episode is also just synonyms for interpretation. <laughs> how we interpret the word interpret in the context of the discussion around interpretation. Yep. That was perfect. Yeah. All right. So we've talked a lot about how interpretation works, how we can think about it, the conceptual way of organizing our thoughts around how we superimpose one language on top of another language or one language on top of jargon. But there's another type of interpreting here, which is interpreting events such that we might extrapolate supernatural meaning from those events. And there's also interpreting events in a way that is not supernatural, but maybe more scientific meaning. I think those are sort of both wrapped up inside of this. Yeah. And so essentially what we're going to talk about now is applying superstitious meaning or some kind of meaning to those common events. Now, this is another form of interpretation in which we observe some event and then overlay some language about the meaning of that event. What that means is essentially this. The event was just something that happened. And then we state some reason or meaning for what happened. And you'll find that human beings have this really great way of applying meaning to literally everything that happens in some kind of meaningful way to try to make sense of a situation or to try to rationalize something instead of realizing that the universe is chaos. Right. And so a really good example of this is you might have that this event might take place where a mirror breaks and then there's this superstitious interpretation that that means that there's going to be bad luck. Or there is this superstitious interpretation that you might tell someone to break a leg before a performance, and that will mean that that's good luck. Or there's the superstitious interpretation that females who work really hard can earn just as much as their male counterparts. And, and <laughs> Zing! <laughs> and Social also. commentaries here on WWD. That's right. But yeah, I mean, these, these are situations where, you know, when you look at really exaggerated superstitions, like those are things that, you know, you'll see people interpret different situations. If I say good luck, then I can interpret that as me wishing somebody not to do well in a performance. But while we acknowledge that those are pretty 
extreme examples of maybe like how superstition works. It always goes back to the idea of like people putting meaning to death, right? Like there's a reason for this to happen. There's, there's, you know, there's always a reason that, you know, everything has a reason, those types of things, applying that meaning or applying meaning to, I don't know, let's say where the stars were at in the sky when you were born, how that applies to all of a sudden you have all these personality traits because of your cosmic alignment. And so, and I'm not, I mean, I am digging on that a little bit, but what I mean is like we start applying that meaning to these different events and interpreting all these unique, I don't know if it's just interpreting like different reasons and rationale for why something is occurring. That is a really good example of the stars. I think the other one is tarot cards might be a good example of this where you have, there's an event that took, that took place. There was a bunch of art on a cards. Those cards were shuffled and then they were turned over one at a time. And the art that's on those cards we then impose some language on to say this means this, either about something that's happening or something about the future or it reveals some piece of information. And all that happened was that one little thin piece of cardboard went from being face this direction to face this direction and that there were things that were drawn on it. That was what happened. But what that then meant was interpreted by like a psychic or someone who reads tarot cards in, in some capacity. Right. Or as you're going through that, you apply meaning to different symbols on those cards too. Like sure. you can do that with your own language and your your own learning history. Now, with that being said, we can acknowledge that like there might be some times where those interpretations aren't helpful, but there are times too where applying meaning to events can be extremely helpful. For example, you might observe some event and be able to accurately predict something that is likely to happen and then make meaningful action towards that. Like a meteorologist can observe pressure systems behaving in a certain way and predict a tornado. An astronomer can predict the path of a comet or a casual observer can predict that at 21 years old, when he goes to his first frat party, he's going to have a surprise child in nine months. Exactly. All right. It's also worth acknowledging that interpretations are open to fallibility and can result in bias, errors, bigotry, wasted time and money. Oh, money is another one to interpret, too. Like, it's just a yeah. piece of paper with, like, ink on it. But <laughs> I mean, it's mostly fabric. But anyway, the fact that we interpret it to have a particular value, that's actually kind of a teaser for an episode we have coming up. But yeah, anyway, this is why John Travolta isn't in movies anymore. Did I say John Travolta? <laughs> like, that was my John Travolta. My, that was my New England accent. I forgot that you were from Boston. <laughs> You're Warsh and everything. Yeah. So our language is not always in line with our actions. And we often fail to accurately label why we do what we do, both the podcast on Google searches and in general. But be it a failure of trying to play witness to our own actions or our own blissful ignorance, we run into this issue where sometimes our language doesn't match the context. And this leads to things like interpretations of ambiguous situations or the messages someone might be trying to send to us, such as someone rolling their eyes or not returning a smile. And this can produce this knee-jerk reaction or interpretation, if you will, such as she hates me or I did something wrong or no means yes. <laughs> For example, in an article in Psychology Today, they suggested that, quote, it is also possible something else is going on. Gathering more evidence would help be more certain. Taking the stance toward our interpretation could help everyone, end quote. And I think essentially my recommendation on this and thinking about this carefully, and I mentioned this as my recommendation in a previous episode that we did, but generally try and be as charitable as possible with how you interpret what other people are saying or doing to you. Now, obviously, some people are going to try and be insidious and manipulative and you want to be on the lookout for that. But most of the time, most people, particularly people that you trust and are friends with, they're not trying to hurt you or be mean or cruel in the things that they do. 
And the the better you know someone, the better you'll probably be at being able to detect those things, unless you're super paranoid. For the most part, people are having the same thoughts that you're having about a situation. Like, this person doesn't like me. I'm failing at this stuff because, you know, X, Y, and Z. Like, people are not inherently trying to ruin everybody else's lives. Like, there are just a few people who are actively doing that. Yes, there are. I can, I can think of a few. Yeah, we're not going to get into that right now. We're By the way, we're really close to the election, so we're like three days out. So maybe that's all that's very sensitive to us right now. <laughs> yeah, at the time that we're recording this, this is going to come out so far after the election. By the time you hear this, we might even know who the next president is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending on lawsuits and things of that nature, we may have an idea. So additionally, what ends up happening with this language situation kind of interpretation is that individuals can often apply superstitious meaning to events but they're not likely a result of anything other than that person's own learning history, their own experiences in those similar conditions. So, for example, if deaths and births happen in threes, then it's likely based on experience observing such or paying attention to certain cues in that situation, not necessarily a secret cabal of reptilian overlords that have a penchant for threes. Like, we're not really looking at that. We just might notice that those situations happen even every time that does happen where it's like it happens in threes. The minute somebody says that, now we're immediately looking for the second and third event, and we are looking for that cue. We are looking to align that situation, that context, with some kind of meaning. Right. I mean, for all we know, clouds come in 67s, flowers come in 13s, and farts come in 5s. But nobody says those things. <laughs> Maybe we can start a trend by having declared them here. So yeah, you if you're not told to look for it, you're not going to look for it. You're not going to notice those patterns when they happen, even when they happen just by pure coincidence, or they happen for some other actual reason yeah there's probably an average number of flights that take off from an airport every day and that has to do with the capacity of the airport not with the magic of the particular number that happens to be that average you know yeah it's literally scheduling exactly yeah it's like what is the availability <laughs> of flights to happen at this particular airport yeah so it's interesting though but one thing too that we look at when we start talking about interpreting situations or in applying meaning is you see this happen a lot in conspiracy theories. This is a really great explanation or kind of explanation for why people might take a situation and they might interpret it to fit some other narrative or they might apply some language or apply some context to a situation that doesn't really have it. And so essentially, if you're not familiar with a conspiracy theory, it's what happens when your sheltered uncle discovers alcohol and the internet at the same time. So a uh, common one, the JFK assassination conspiracy theory. I thought this one had gone away, but then it just sort of came back or maybe it never really went away, but it gained more popularity recently. I don't know. But the conspiracy theories involved in this are with respect to who actually killed JFK or what actually happened on that day or how he actually died. And that include things like a magic bullet, the badge man, the grassy knoll, Magneto. All kinds. Of, yeah, that's what's a great what a great like add in in that Marvel universe, by the way, right. like when they, I was like, Oh, that's good. No, but I mean also too, like there were a lot of holes in the actual event and so many other things happened that people started kind of, there were a couple books that were published pretty soon after he was assassinated and it filled holes that people did not have information for. So it became this large thing, but it's come back recently. I had somebody on the internet of all places tell me that <laughs> JFK was murdered because of the media. The media had control and they controlled the uh, military complex and I should wake up. And then also I was part of a, a larger group called Sheeple. What? On so, the Internet? I know. How, How did this just, happen on the Internet? That was a, yeah, such a sacred place. You know, it was just it was held in such high regard for so long that there's just not trash everywhere on the Internet. But, you know. 
<sighs> Another really good example of this, I think, is this idea of synchronicity, which people have probably have the experience of and maybe not have the word for. And many people have the word for. And again, this is just another form of this where, you, where it's it's noticing patterns. And so it's noticing something recent that starts happening all the time. So a common example a lot of people report is noticing that when they get a new car, all of a sudden they notice all the other cars of the same type that are out on the road and in parking lots. Or, for example, when your grandparent might pass away and that grandparent happened to love hummingbirds, and then all of a sudden you notice a lot of hummingbirds and interpret that as your grandmother's spirit. And not to belittle people's beliefs about these things, just to notice that like this is where we get our bias, is that we look for patterns. Or when the age that you currently are and the year that it currently is are both prime numbers, you bet your life savings on the that number for the lottery and then lose it all. You know, the yep. world is just in chaos or is at least influenced by such a massive number of variables that it's impossible to comprehensively track and identify what all those variables are and then find meaning in those numbers. And so we look for simple patterns that don't necessarily represent the complete picture. And then we attribute cause to those simple patterns when that's just a symptom at best you know at the end of the day we are all subject to what we are able to observe in our own environmental context right we are all just subject and beholden to our own learning experiences so when we start looking for those patterns we start applying our own experiences to those contexts and we start looking for patterns that may not even exist if you ever get to see the episode of it's always sunny when Charlie Day starts working in the mailroom and he starts like putting together the red yarn on all the post-it boards and stuff like that because he's like figured out a, a conspiracy theory with the mail. It's literally just the guy that they've named in it isn't picking up his mail. And so it's all of a sudden turns into this whole, uh, it's Pepe da Silva. And he's like freaking out. But it's like literally he just has found a pattern, which was that somebody wasn't picking up their mail. So in this regard, you know, when we start looking at why we do this, why we do all this stuff, it, it can be useful. Right. Uh, when we start interpreting patterns and identifying these patterns and looking for them, because science is a form of interpretation and it's a way of overlaying the language on top of these phenomenon that we look at in a highly organized and precise way. So looking at things in threes, not super useful unless you find that there is a pattern that's relevant, that is consistent, that we can actually apply to some kind of meaningful thing. Right now, we haven't found that yet. But what we have found is maybe when we start looking at math as a language, it can actually start quantifying these events. They can start pulling these events together. We can start looking at patterns and start predicting based on data that's collected that we can do projections like we talked about the meteorologist and, and tornadoes and all that. We can start really looking at all of that data in relation to one another. That gives us a better understanding of things like the earth being round, the seasons coming, global climate change, taking meaningful action against COVID. You know, all of those things are part of looking at an event and applying language to those events. Okay, so speaking of the utility of math as a language to quantify events, we can speak about now interpreting with respect to how we understand data when we're doing science. And to begin with, literally every single scientific study is some kind of interpretation of data that were collected. Every single one of them. This is not a bad thing at all. Like We wouldn't have science if we didn't have language and interpretation. But it's important to understand going into this that when we do science, we are doing a form of interpretation, albeit a highly organized and precise form of interpretation. And as a matter of fact, what's interesting about this is when you see some studies, some studies get reinterpreted based on a new look and outlook on the data that's collected. So 
two scientists can look at the same data and actually come to different conclusions depending on how they interpret that data. So it's really cool to kind of see that. Now, as we start looking at this, one of those ways that we, we dig into the idea of these interpretations are statistical versus clinical significance. How do we interpret this data from a statistical standpoint versus is it clinically relevant? When I use the word clinical significance, what I'm talking about is it's defined as a practical importance of an effect, like a reduction in symptoms, whether it is uh, has a real, genuine, palpable, noticeable effect on daily life. So what we're looking at here is, does the change in this person's behavior, does the change in this event, does the change in this you know global pandemic, do all of those things have some meaningful effect on daily life for the folks that, that it's affecting? Absolutely. And that gets to, I guess, then how we're going to use this. And this is one of my favorite parts to talk about and to understand. And it's helpful to elaborate on the fact that raw quantifications, that the whole math system we were talking about, it's language and it's meant to represent some kind of event. And then those quantifications are arranged in a particular way. We say like this event is one that happened and this event is one that did not. And this was an opportunity for this to happen. This was an opportunity for this to not happen. This was, so we're going to quantify them. We're going to arrange rating scales by which we're going to quantify the valence of something, for example. And by putting that same set of data on a table versus a pie chart versus a bar graph versus a line graph versus in text or a narrative, they're all going to yield different understandings of what those data mean. Thus, anytime we read data to come to some kind of understanding about the world, or to make some kind of prediction, we're imposing multiple layers of language on those events because we're first imposing the language of math and quantification on those events to, to organize them into an, obs, you know, an observation that's described in a particular way using numbers. And then we impose those again by putting them in some interpretable medium, such as a graph or a table. And then again, in terms of what they mean or what kind of global statements we can make about those data that we've collected. And understanding this can allow us to be sensitive to the fact that we might bias our understanding of data about an event due to the choices we make along the way about how to collect, how to organize, and how to make statements about what those information are. And again, this is not because there's anything wrong with the scientific process or that science is bad. Like This is a much more systematic way of doing this than just making things up willy-nilly. It is worth understanding that like the reason that we want to talk about this is so that we can identify where our blind spots are, where our weaknesses are, and just be really robust in how precise we are in that system of doing science. And as a matter of fact, this is actually a reason why we run into when people start looking at data that's described and and shared via news networks of people that don't really know how to interpret this data really well, you see a lot of people that don't trust the scientific method. In COVID, this is a perfect example of, of new data coming out, new interpretations of this stuff coming out, new and, and just so many people talking about these data that show up, and nobody's really talking about it in a meaningful way or in a consistent way. And so now people have uh, less trust of these things. So for example, when you start looking at political polls, they are so much less trusted by people now than they used to be. And, and part of that is because of how the data gets collected, how it gets organized, how consumers of that information superimpose their own language on those numbers. I mean, you hear this all the time when a poll comes out and says this political candidate is, is in there's, there's going to be a landslide victory. Then people go, Oh, it's from this place. When I have this other place that says, the same, they collected the same data from the same people and they say an entirely different thing because of how it's organized. Right. It's the exact same data. 
It's the exact same data. And you see this happen all the time. You might even look at the same bar graph and be like, oh, well, you know, they, they say that the, you know, this this blue state's gonna be a red state because da 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 da. But they collected data from this particular county. And you know, it just becomes this unique situation where the interpretations are all incredibly geared towards very particular situations. Or uh, one thing that happens that I heard this discussed on when someone was interviewing one of these pollsters and they pointed out if you say something like this candidate has an 80% chance of winning this state, that does not mean they're going to win 80% of the votes. Not at all. They're basically saying that we think this person is relatively heavily favored to win, but we don't actually, we don't know what that's going to look like. It could mean that they get only 51% of the votes. We're just 80% sure that they're going to get 51% of the votes. And that means that there's a 20% like likelihood that the other person will get more 51% or more of the votes. And so it's a way in which these interpretations or those data can be interpreted differently, both by the analysts who are portraying them and the audience who is receiving them. And you see this perfect example during COVID, right? So you've got pundits, scientists, politics, politicians specifically that seem to cherry pick specific information in such a way that it plays to what any given entity wants to hear. They focus on things that that shift between looking at opening bars in Florida and how the economics in Florida are, are crashing because people are closed, but then they're not reporting out the actual rates. They're reporting when you hear people talk about the death rates. Unfortunately, the death rates are problematic, 200,000 people. But when you hear that word 200,000 people, you hear that phrase, people will go, Did they die from COVID or something else? Did they die from this or this? And so you hear that argument interpreting data on how the definition of dying from COVID is even defined. Like how, what are the criteria by which somebody has to die from COVID and that counts towards that unfortunate population that have passed away. And so you start looking at this and and depending on who they're talking to or, or looking at this virus in particular, the data that's collected and interpreted it changes meaning depending on who they're talking to. It's like looking through a keyhole, essentially. So, you know, we don't have a really great picture of what's going on with COVID. We have an idea of people that are getting reported. We have people that like confirm tests, but we can interpret what we see based on the information that's given to us, but we're probably listening, missing a lot of information. And that's exactly what looking in a keyhole is. You look into a room and you can only see what you can see through that keyhole. You can't see the entire context. You can't see the entire room. Keyhole almost feels generous compared to what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Specifically in Florida, the state has shut down reporting out rates. They they wanted to hide the data and do some really nefarious things. So like, which is a shame, but we're not, this is not a politics podcast. No, but I do want to address because you brought up the fact of like what counts as a death by COVID sort of thing. And this has come up on social media and it's come up in various news outlets. And I think there's misunderstanding and misinformation about what that means. And I think there was a report that said something like 90% of deaths were not due to COVID. And so one of the problems with this is that there's no requirement for how these need to be reported. So different states and even different hospitals inside of different states might report things differently. There's one. Two is on the death certificate, there is a cause of death. If that cause of death was there, and there's usually multiple. So there's like, there are multiple preceding conditions and then cause of death, or it could just say just cause of death. Now, if the cause of death says COVID, then that would be a COVID-related death. If the cause of death was pneumonia that was caused by COVID, the death certificate might actually say pneumonia and not COVID, but they wouldn't have gotten pneumonia if they hadn't had COVID. Or they might have had something else like asthma, for example, and so they had asthma already, they got COVID, and then they maybe passed away because of that, 
Well, even though the death was caused by an underlying condition that was asthma, they would almost certainly still have been alive if they hadn't gotten COVID. And so right. it's understand that even when COVID isn't the primary cause, it is still the cause. And that all the times that it says that the death was attributable to COVID, it was because of COVID. It's like very much similar to like AIDS. AIDS is not the thing that always kills people. It is oftentimes the complications by the fact that their autoimmune system is compromised by this virus. And so they'll die from things that they would not have died from if they didn't have AIDS. And that's what's important to understand about this with COVID. And so that interpretation is really important because of how many people have come out and say this just you know more fuel on the fire for people who think that this is a hoax when it absolutely is not. Right. It's it's an accelerant. Right. I mean, and people need to understand that. But when you look at the data, it's just, again, and you brought up an excellent point. It's not being reported consistently in a way that's interpretable in a meaningful way to have or convince the community that this is a serious problem. And it gets it gets misinterpreted by folks and it gets misinterpreted by team members, you know, like folks that play on a certain team that it is a hoax. And it's just it's not. But it's not a hoax at all. But there are problems with the data that are coming out. And the problem is that it's probably underreporting how serious this is. One more quick thing I just want to throw out there. Doctors do not get more money for COVID deaths. That is that is just not a thing. Yeah, not not even close. Yeah. Okay. Let's get back on track. <laughs> I felt the need to do a little fact correcting, myth busting. We always do myth busting. I appreciate so that. The opportunity, yeah. All right. So anyway, going back to this idea of interpretation, how this is related to COVID. This is the first time I feel like we've dug into COVID that hard. But this interpretation fuels a narrative and what you might think of as being media bias. And of course, there's going to be bias in the media. There's going to be bias in just about anything. It's trying to report it with either acknowledging those bias as much as possible or trying to keep it in check as much as possible. And it's important to understand that this is all learned. This is things that we learn to do. And the news, the media, they're likely to report in such a way that it increases the probability of likes, retweets, money, attention, job retention. It's going to recruit an audience and hold that audience and recruit more audience as much as possible. And so this could create bias with regard to religion, political party, culture, sports teams, health beliefs, science, geography, anything can fall into this camp. And so it's understanding that like the reason that these biases occur is because there's very specific learning that these networks have experienced to make decisions about how they go about portraying their content. And unfortunately, being very straightforwardly bland about facts is probably less likely to recruit a lot of views. And so it's hard for media and journalists to balance like, do I get paid or do I tell like as close to the truth as I can? Because if I sensationalize this, I get more attention and therefore more money. And if I try and just say, this is just what happened, then I get less attention and therefore less money. And it's important to be able to, as a consumer of that information, to be able to kind of rifle through that and understand that there are particular you know, events and different reasons and motivations why certain information might be cherry picked to show. But also too, it's like you said, it's not sexy to share a bunch of graphs and be like, hey, Look at this data. Look at these data. This is what it says because it's it's not as it's not as sensational. It's not as it's not as interesting a story. But according to allslides.com, which is a, a an online resource that uses a systematic type of rating system to place news stories on a scale across left, right or center to really kind of help like identify that political spectrum, they basically say this, quote, 
We are all biased towards things that show us in the right. We are biased towards information that confirms our existing beliefs. We are biased towards the people or information that supports us, makes us look good, and affirms our judgments and virtues. And we are biased towards the more moral choice of action, at least that which seems moral to us. And so understanding that, that's the lens through which we interpret any information when it comes to these things. We interpret data through this lens. We interpret statements from political members through this lens. And, and that really kind of leans us towards those particular biases. It's a super good quote. Yeah, it really is. It's great. All right. Now, from author Craig Kennedy, this comes from the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis in 2004, in a review of Making Sense of Life by Evelyn Fox Keller, they're talking about facilitated communication. And if you turn this episode off in the next few minutes, please don't do it before we give you a disclaimer that facilitated communication has been thoroughly shown to be complete bunk. It is pseudoscience. It does not work. The outcome from facilitated communication is that there are data that are produced, including these elaborate verbal statements and complex answers to questions. And there are two interpretations of what is going on in this facilitated communication. And in case you aren't aware at all, basically what happens is someone who has very low developed language is given a keyboard and a facilitator, who's a person who holds their hand and helps them type on that keyboard. And by help, I mean they hold their hand and they type on that keyboard using that person's hand as if it were their own. Right. Advocates for facilitated communication argue that a person with autism overcomes their apraxia with the assistance of another person. And they can base this conclusion on the outcome, the words that the person actually writes. The other interpretation is that the communication that's happening from the person who's being assisted is actually coming from the assister, the assistant, the person who's holding the hand, not the person with autism. The conclusion that's drawn from this is that based on additional experimental evidence, which controls for extraneous variables from others, that it is, in fact, the person who is holding the hand of the person at the keyboard that is the one who is producing the text. And this has been demonstrated repeatedly with controlled research to show that the outcome of that, that typing is under control every single time by the person who's holding the hand of the person on the keyboard. The person with an autism diagnosis, potentially with apraxia, they are not producing that text. This is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time, just do a deep dive on what happened with these. But this, this has resulted in some horrific things happening with abuse, with jail time, with money lost, with rights lost. With, I mean, just really serious consequences of this thing. So really worth making sure we're clear on the interpretation of this, that we understand that from a scientific perspective, we have shown that this is 100% false. <laughs> yeah, I like that you added that sing songy part too. I mean, going back to the notes earlier when we talked about like layer upon layer upon layer of languaging on top of this, this isn't just like taking a bit of information and going, yeah, that's debunked. This is layer on top of layer on top of layer of, of languaging and interpretation of these data that have been proven time and time again. The facilitated communication is completely and utterly bogus. So in case you're not clear on our stance, facilitated communication is utterly nonsense. Do not use it. It is harmful. It is debunked. And if you're a, fa a facilitated communicating advocate, don't message us because we don't care because it's, it's been done. It's been debunked. So goodbye. <laughs> Normally, we'd be open to that conversation, but that one is not one that I at least am open to. So, I mean, I'll have a conversation with you. I had a, a family one time that asked me to put that in a behavior pl plan, and I said, I'll put it in the barrier section of the behavior plan. Right. This is the- and they were not happy with me. The, the do not do part. 
Yeah, do not do these things. So another one too that gets commonly mentioned when we talk about interpreting data and looking at this is the stock market. And this is commonly mentioned on the news by certain pundits, politicians, as a key indicator of economic success in the country. You'll hear that all the time. The stock market's doing well. The stock market's doing well. However, as other economists and professionals have noted, this isn't necessarily a reliable and accurate depiction of quality of life. Okay, as as those without 401ks or equity in a company they aren't represented under, they don't have that metric. They don't have that information. So basically, the stock market talks about how well rich people are doing, but not everybody. Okay, and so while it is certainly relevant in certain analyses of domestic and global economies, it's missing so much information. It cannot be used as a definitive measure of economic status or well-being within any sort of developed nation. So, and without getting into too much of a discussion about the wealth gap, it's important to note that the wealthiest 10% of American households own 84% of all stocks. The bottom 90% own about 16%. So there is a huge disparity in these data. And to your point, because you're absolutely right, the stock market does not equal the economy. It is a thing that exists inside the economy, and it is representative of certain aspects of the economy, but it is representative of, as you said, about 10% of Americans in the economy and not even their entire contribution or their success. It is simply a part of a part. It is a prediction about future values based on opinions and projections of those who are likely to participate in that venture. but. Otherwise, it is a fraction of the understanding of all the variables that are important to understand what it means to have a good economy. And it's always interesting to me to hear people talk about the economy with little reference to anything. And usually it's one thing only. They say, let's talk about the stock market. And like, well, that's sort of kind of part of a part of it. Or we'll talk about unemployment. Like, that's actually a much larger part of it because it affects so many people. Let's talk about GDP. Let's talk about taxes. Let's, you know, there are a lot. Uh, let's talk about debt. There are so many different elements of understanding the economy that you can't boil it down to one single number from one single source. You've got to look at the whole picture and there's just so much more to it. Also, going back to the stock market, this is subject to influence by things like foreign policy, by housing data and stuff like that. And the stock value may increase exponentially, but it will not be proportional to wages, suggesting that even while the stock value may be positively benefiting a minority of stockholders, the general population, the working class individuals, the people who maybe even work for those companies, will often see little difference in their day-to-day life. And the people who are consumers of that product will also see little difference in their day-to-day life. So it's just not a very close indicator and interpreting it should be done judiciously, I'll say. Yes. So it is looking at the stock market is looking at a very small keyhole into the room of economics. Right. It's Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the keyhole metaphor is very good. Yeah. It always blows my mind when people keep talking about that. So now I feel like we got into the languaging, we got into applying meaning and we got into the data part of this. But there are other considerations when we start looking at this. And and these are different things that we wanted to touch on these because they illustrate how important and how meaningful interpretation can be and how it can actually influence larger groups of people through, you know, poor or or misguided or just general interpretations without information. So one of the considerations that we want to talk about was interpreting law and specifically interpreting some things within a culture. And I'm going to reference Tipper Gore in the music censorship, you know, that happened in the 80s and 90s, which was a lot of fun to watch, I guess. <laughs> like a car crash. It really is. It was a mess. Like hearing people read certain lyrics over in a court of law that should you're just like, OK, that's you read a, a song about masturbation on the stand. Okay. 
<laughs> so essentially what happens is this in the 80s and 90s, you had Tipper Gore, who mostly in the 80s is kind of a little the late, the late 80s. Basically, what happened was Tipper and some of her friends who are politicians heard some lyrics that were they deemed as unsavory and inappropriate for their children. And essentially, instead of blaming themselves for buying this music and not checking it out and getting it to their kids, what they did was they blamed the record industry and the artists. And so what they ended up doing was they had lyrics that were that came up, like specifically Prince's Little Nicky. When you hear that song, it's literally about a, a, somebody masturbating. The lyrics are interpreted in some of these musical releases during the 80s, and it resulted in what's called the Parents Music Resource Center, the PMRC. This group went on this massive campaign to provide this overhaul or to request an overhaul of the record industry specific to obscenity. So they they interpreted obscenities as, you know, different types of language and statements and phrases that were used within certain contexts. Basically, what they did was they applied these rating systems to the record industry and it put labels on artistic creation. It was interpreted as socially inappropriate and all this stuff. And this movement was created. This movement is actually responsible for that really cool black and white logo that you see on records that say explicit content, parental advisory that made you want to buy it more. So they might've <laughs> actually done a lot of record, like uh, a lot of places a favor because they, they actually put some bands on the map. Now, one of my favorite things about this is in their interpretation, they actually made some of these bands even more money. And they actually created a list of 15 songs in popular music called the filthy 15. And so I wanted to read a couple of them for you. If you wanted to go listen to these songs. So number one is Prince's darling Nikki. Okay. Nice. You've got Judas priest. Eat me alive. Cannibalism. You've got Motley Cruz bastard. So this is a single parent shaming. Yeah. 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 <laughs> ACDC's let me put my love into you. It's about making out. Yeah. Twisted sisters. We're not going to take it is on this list. It's about, protesting censorship <laughs> yeah, yeah which is yeah, uh, great now one of my favorite ones that's on here is merciful fates into the coven which is all about the occult nice i was just making up the other ones just to be funny. yeah yeah no no you're good but i'm like it's like that one's great it's like that song's about witches yeah and venom's possessed which is also about the occult so and cindy lopper's my favorite one is cindy lopper made this list for shebop nice now, if you listen to Shebop, if you're not familiar, that song is about masturbation, but you have to go so far in interpreting the language that she uses that there is no way that you would ever gather that it's about masturbation unless you really, really worked at it. <laughs> Speaking of really, really working on masturbation, just kidding. <laughs> listen to our, our episode on the masturbation. You'll learn, learn so much more. Yeah. Okay. Then there's also this idea of interpreting behavior. And we mentioned this with like the role of the eyes and that sort of thing. And this is observers may apply meaning to certain behaviors that they observe. And psychology has benefited from this over generations. And while some interpretations might be meaningful, there are some that are just not quite there. So for example, is the Oedipus complex has pretty much disappeared because interpreting behavior as a desire for sleeping with your mom and the need to murder your dad is better explained through disorders or, or other processes and not necessarily just your regular daily behavior. Interpreting the way that someone dresses as intending to either compliment or offend you in some particular way, unless their shirt like literally says F you on it, if they come into a meeting and they're wearing a t-shirt and you interpret that to mean that they have no respect, that's your problem, not the person who walked in the interview in a t-shirt. Right, right. So, I mean, I think of tattoos too, right? Like tattoos, oh, yeah. like people interpret, like if you have tattoos, then you either like, there's something wrong, you must like pain, like da 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 you like attention. It's like, I like art. I like the tattoos and all my tattoos mean something. So like, stop touching me. 
because you don't need to grab my arm and look at my tattoos. Just ask me questions and I'll tell you. But that's people interpret those types of things. It's like something that's like that's that's your own stuff. You got some stuff to work out. Like I just like tattoos. So it's pretty interesting stuff there. And then so finally, as part of interpretation, and we've mentioned this and we've kind of this is probably one of the main take home points is that you have to be able to synthesize contextual variables and not isolate a single portion of the context. So in observing behavior, it's easy to take a specific behavior and interpret it way out of context. And specifically, you see this with the media and you see this with sound bites. You'll see people take a phrase or a quote and they'll put it out of context and it turns in this whole rigmarole about all the stuff it doesn't really need to. And the first thing that comes into mind when I think about this is, is Howard Dean's presidential run. There there was an infamous video where he was yelling like a madman. It was like portrayed as him yelling like a madman, him going like yelling and, and doing all stuff in front of a crowd of people. And the way that the sound is mixed, the way that the, the scene looks in the video, it looks a little bit eccentric. I wouldn't say he looked like a madman, but it was a little bit over the top. But when you look at these, the situation and you apply it in the context, he was at a rally for his campaign after having won some key primary votes, like he had won something at the time and his crowd was riled up and he was matching the energy of the crowd. He was there with them. Everybody was super excited. So in that context, it looked like everybody was celebrating, but you cut that out. You take that sliver out and it looks like he is screaming at a group of people for no reason. And it's a shame because it actually debunked and derailed his entire political campaign at the time. That one video was a thing that they were like, this guy is unstable when it was really a small part of the larger context. And so when you look at interpretation, that is the thing. You have to be able to synthesize that situation in the larger context of what's going on. Yeah, and there's there's some fun exercises that just for time's sake, I won't go into now, but where you can give the sort of punchline, if you will, to a scenario, and then you work backward from there to give the context. And every time you take a step back, the judgment by which you approach that scenario changes. So like start with, oh, this was bad. Oh, never mind. That was good. Oh, never mind. That was bad. Oh, never mind. It was good. And you can just like keep changing back and forth as you introduce new variables. I actually just watched a movie that had this unfolding where they start with this extremely unlikable character. And then you realize by the end, like, oh, everything they did actually made sense the entire time. And it actually alternates throughout the movie, whether you're sort of rooting for that person or not. And in an interesting way to the more context you have the better you understand that. So you aren't just interpreting it to mean something that it's not supposed to mean, but people know that they can play with this, strip away the context and have it mean what they want it to mean. And that's just, you know, it's unfortunate and it's insincere and it is where we are. So, yep, absolutely. So it's a long one. I think that covers as much interpretation as we can today without doing a third or fourth episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this was a this is this was a quite a topic, but it was a lot of fun. I've been wanting to do this. I think I feel like we covered it sufficiently to the goals that I sort of had. Hopefully, you as the listener got a similar amount of uh, information out of this. So let's uh, wrap this yeah. up. Let's some take home points. Let's do it. Let's do it. So. The first take home point is this. The bedrock of successful interpretation is merely identifying topographical language that sets up another individual as a listener using the same or similar language framework. So basically what we're saying is you want to make sure that any sort of interpretation allows you to share and get information from whoever's listening to you. You have to be able to have that kind of common ground to do that. And this is going to influence the extent to which our language produces the appropriate reaction from the listener. So if I'm talking in jargon, you're not going to hear me. But if I'm using real layperson language, then you're more likely to hear this and you're more likely to understand what I'm saying. And that's really the key to being like a professional translator for any sort of information or any sort of topic that you're trying to interpret. 
Another take-home point I think that's useful here is while one might blissfully think that data tell the whole story of a particular event of the state of things, given the circumstances of the conditions under which those data were collected, they are often subject to interpretation and manipulation sometimes, but of those analysts and observers who try to map trends and patterns onto preconceived narratives about what they want those data to say. And so that's why we have a peer review process in science that we can try and ensure that the narrative and the data are as conservatively aligned as possible so that we have the our best guess from the available information and not wild speculation. Yeah. Now, a question that's kind of come up a few times, and, and it's something maybe you're leaving with is this idea is, is true objectivity possible? And are we even capable of simply reporting the facts? At the end of the day, it, it's more complicated than that, right? If any given news or science agency fails to interpret the data first, it inevitably falls on the people to do it for themselves. And every interpretation is subject to individual bias. We know that that's the lens by which we observe the world. And so being as precise and consistent as possible and acknowledging our own biases, especially in science, is really one of the most effective ways and useful ways to interpret the world around us. I agree. I've got one more. And that is that the individual experiences that we have lead to the way in which one can interpret data that we encounter, the language that we are trying to interpret, or other sort of natural phenomenon that we are trying to impose upon which we are trying to impose meaning. These variables are by no means simple, and they can act in a way that is that can be convoluted and difficult to detect in terms of how they they influence our behavior of things. So it's worth it just, again, stepping back and recognizing where our biases are and how they affect the way that we speak about <laughs> and make use of the available information and observations that we have. Yeah. I mean, I think that covers it, right? Like, I mean, like interpretation is far more complex and actually probably more interesting than maybe people realized. I think it's extremely interesting. And again, I think you could argue that it is the majority of things that we tend to do when we are using language, which is pretty much all the time. That's at least how I interpret it. Great. Okay. <laughs> I, I said we weren't going to use that pun again, and we did several times, and I'm sorry, and I hope that you were able to stick with us through this, and this was a very long conversation, and so let's get to some quick recommendations. Sounds good. Recommendations. All right, I am going to recommend a TV show that I recently finished watching, and it's an old TV show, but it's called Monk. Have you heard of this one? I have. It's so much fun. Okay, yeah. So this is starring Tony Shalhoub primarily, and, and then Ted Levine is in there as well, and, and some other actors and actresses that you'll recognize, and a bunch of cameos. And it's it's one of those like crime TV shows, like sort of fictionalized murder shows that approaches it from a comedy angle, sort of like psych. I thought the show was overall really well done. It was really fun. I tend to dislike crime procedurals entirely to their very core, but I actually had a lot of fun with this one. So that's my recommendation. That's a good one. I like it. At the time of this, I have no idea what the political status in the world is. And so... Even with that being said, I think that maybe some people in the last year have probably felt some discourse. And so if you really want to be able to feel like you're doing something that's not just activism, maybe you're interested in doing stuff, I'm going to recommend two websites. One is called runforsomething.com. Runforsomething.com does a, they, they're a group that puts together and helps folks who are interested in running for, for local and state level, you know, different political offices and elected offices. So 
If you're interested and you are thinking about running for something, but you're not quite sure, this is a really great place to kind of check out and get some ideas on resources and different ways that you can run. And they help kind of put together campaigns. Now, the other website I'm going to look at and actually recommend to everybody is 314action.org. And this website is designed to help create campaigns and help get folks who are scientists first into elected offices. So the goal is to help create campaigns, help support folks, help identify those folks that are scientists who are running for office and really provide a lot of backing and support for those groups. So if you're interested and you really want to do something and you really feel like you, maybe the last year or the last, this election wasn't really w the way you wanted it to go, these are two places to go to kind of maybe work on that. Two for one recommendations. Yay. All right. That's all I got. You have anything else? Nope. That's it. All right. Thank you, Alan, for your notes on this. Thank you, Justin, for your amazing editing and suffering through our consistent mess ups and restarts and ums and uhs and other things. Thank you very much, Shane, for recording with me today. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, especially to our Patreon supporters. And if you like the show, please refer us to a friend. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about this and other episodes by going to our website at www.wwdpodcast.com and Google our stuff. You can also find it that way as well. We're now on Reddit and we're on all the platforms where you get podcasts. And I think that you can access us anywhere that it is that you can find podcasts. Please, if you have anything to say about interpretation, if you're an interpreter, if you're an interpreter in any of these forms, if you're a scientist, if you're a language interpreter, if you're a sign language interpreter, if you are Nelson Mandela, <laughs> if you have any other <laughs> things you want to correct us on, please reach out to us and we'd be more than happy to have a discussion with you unless you're a facilitated communicator, in which case just go read the research and then change your profession. And yeah, we've drawn the line there. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's all I've got. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.